Our sermon text this morning comes from Psalm 23. I ask again that you pay careful attention to the reading of God's holy and infallible word. Psalm 23. Yahweh is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. The word of the Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We ask, Lord, that you would be with us as as we seek to unpack it, to see the wisdom in it, how, how to understand it, but also how to live it. Be with us, Lord, this morning as we seek to see your word, but also live it. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Thank you again for having me back. It is good to be back. It is always wonderful for me and my family to worship with you all. And it is obviously a wonderful opportunity for me to practice and uh, get um, more experience with preaching and delivering God's word to you. Uh, Psalm 23. Psalm 23 is probably the most well-known chapter in the Bible. Most of you probably know it by heart. Or at least you have it frame somewhere in your house. <laughs> Many ways, Psalm 23 has made its way into pop culture. Uh, you probably have heard Psalm 23 quoted or alluded to in movies such as Titanic, uh, Full Metal Jacket, or in music uh, such as uh, Pink Floyd, or U2, Coolio, and then obviously the great artist and future uh, president Kanye West. <laughs> Psalm 23 is all over the place. It's in decorating shops. Our favorite sports celebrities have it tattooed on their bodies. The irony, though, is that most references in this, of this psalm in pop culture, and sometimes even Christian culture, reverse the psalm's emphasis on God's actions and instead take Psalm 23 into a, a nice, feel-good sentiment about going through hard times. But I want to argue that Psalm 23 needs to be woven into the very fabric of our lives to be lived out. And the question then becomes, how? How is this supposed to be lived out? What what does this psalm do for the one who sings it or meditates upon it? Is it just to help us know that God, our shepherd, is with us no matter what happens? Well, partly, yes. But I want to argue it's much much more than that. Uh, Most scholars place Psalm 23 within the category or the genre of confidence. And it is a song of confidence because it most adequately describes the object of the author, the psalmist's confidence, Yahweh. Yahweh as shepherd, but also Yahweh as our host. And what I want to do this morning 
is take that idea of confidence so clearly expressed in Psalm 23 and connect it with the Christian's understanding of assurance. For a long time, my understanding of assurance was more connected to my cognitive ability. You know, how, for example, how did I know I was a Christian? Well, I believed, or really, I agreed and submitted my understanding to the idea that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and my Lord and Savior. I grew up in the PCA, uh, in the Reformed world. So salvation communicated to a child had a lot to do with knowing things, getting right answers, which is helpful and shouldn't be discouraged, obviously. Uh, That is definitely instrumental for one's maturing faith, especially young children. However, I remember being young and coming out in the middle of the night because I wanted to talk to my parents because I was scared to death I was going to hell. I remember asking my parents, how do I know that I'm a Christian? How do I know that I'm going to heaven? I was calling out for some kind of assurance. So my parents asked me questions, and they assured me with what I knew to be true about Jesus, and this would, at the very least, help me fall asleep. But honestly, looking back now, it wasn't so much the answers my parents gave me that helped me sleep or that felt that made me feel assured. It was really more the, the love and concern I could feel with my parents' arms around me, physically assuring me of my security. That tangible, experiential love seated on my father's knee. This is what gave me assurance, or at least enough to sleep at the time. And, and as, I, uh, as I contemplated this memory, I realized that a lot of evangelical teaching and preaching that at least I've received tends to overthink our notions of assurance as if assurance dwells merely in the spiritual or the intellectual realm, void from the physical or from the tangible, from our senses. And I think we need to remember, our faith is not just a spiritual faith or simply an intellectual faith. It is also a physical faith. And it is because we are made with physical bodies that we long for an assurance that is also physical. Many many of you have probably experienced times in your life where you found yourself asking God for a physical sign or an experience to assure you of of his presence or his love. If we could only have an experience like Saul on the road to Damascus, or heard God's voice so audibly like Samuel, or touched the wounds of Jesus after the resurrection like Thomas. We have all wished to have those experiences, right? We long for an assurance of faith that can be seen and touched. But do we not have those tangible assurances today? Well, I believe Psalm 23 gives us three specific answers to the question of our assurance. And all three answers are tangible realities for us today. Let let me just give you my conclusion up front to be clear. Psalm 23 gives a sequence of images that lay out the Christian's assurance alluding to the following. One, baptism. Two, discipline. And then three, the Lord's Supper. These three allusions 
or it makes Psalm 23 a psalm of confidence, or what I'm calling a song of assurance. So first, baptism. In the first four verses, the imagery is especially calm and peaceful. The psalmist describes himself in light of the shepherd's care for him. He does not lack anything. He has everything he needs. He lies in green pastures, a picture of life, good living, and refreshment. And then he leads me beside still waters. Still waters. Now it could be that this is just more poetry alluding to calmness. But the language of the Bible takes symbolism seriously. So I think we need to go a little deeper in understanding this. Still waters. The Hebrew can can be most literally translated here as waters of rest. Water and rest. This is redemptive language. Now, we, we don't have the time to unpack the entire symbolic significance of these images, water and rest. But I will say a couple of things. This kind of imagery should evoke the Bible's use of water as it relates to redemption. And then also the Bible's use of rest being connected to God's promises. So for example, the waters of the Red Sea delivering the Israelites against Pharaoh's army. This watery deliverance brought them into God's presence, his resting place at the tent of meeting later at the end of the book of Exodus. And then eventually into the promised land, the promised rest God gives Israel. So we have this movement of water to rest. And this movement of water to rest is all over the Bible. The creation story, Noah and the ark. The oasis Yahweh leads Israel into the wilderness. The miracle of water given by God to Israel from a rock. The rain from heaven God gives Israel when they are near death. And then the purification and washings in Leviticus. And then, of course, the fulfillment of biblical rest found in the person and work of Jesus. Uh, Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And Jesus is constantly doing things to water, or with water, or on water. Water and rest. This is salvific language. One author writes, In the Bible, if you have found water, you have found your way back to paradise. If you find water, you've entered Sabbath. I think here it becomes impossible not to make connections to baptism. In baptism, the baptized are clothed in Christ, Galatians 3.27, the Good Shepherd. And their souls are restored and given new status as children of God. So in baptism, the newly baptized believer becomes enabled by the Holy Spirit to walk on paths of righteousness. And Psalm 23 takes us from waters of rest to the restoration of our soul, which then leads us to paths of righteousness. So the nourishment of the water here in Psalm 23 becomes a means. It becomes a means of restoration and righteousness, just like baptism. And we should remember, baptism is something God does. And this makes perfect sense when the allusion to baptism in Psalm 23 is something that the shepherd does. The shepherd leads his sheep to the waters. He nourishes them. It is something that the shepherd gives to restore his sheep and to himself, to 
restores the sheep to himself, and then that's what nourishes them. I have heard many, many testimonies from Christians who are either baptized or as an infant or as an adult. And it's amazing to hear how baptism comes up in their testimonies as something that guided, as something that guided them or protected their faith. And this has made me realize that the Holy Spirit at work in the mystery of baptism is remarkably reminiscent of a shepherd, of a shepherd leading his sheep to waters of rest to restore, to protect, and then set them on the right path. St. Athanasius wrote about Psalm 23, saying, The water of repose without doubt signifies holy baptism, by which the weight of sin is removed. St. Cyril of Alexandria is also clear about the connection between Psalm 23 and baptism. He writes, The place of pasture is the paradise from which we fell, to which Christ leads which, which Christ leads us and establishes us by the waters of rest, that is to say, baptism. So Psalm 23 gives us confidence. It gives us assurance because it reminds us of our baptism, what God physically did to us with water in order to make us his. This psalm reminds us of his shepherding grace to us when he leads us to water, restores our soul, and then sets us on paths righteousness. Remember, baptism is a gift from God where he claims those that are his, a member of the covenant body. And your baptism is crucial for your confidence in the faith. It is your assurance to whom you belong. So baptism is our first assurance. The second allusion in the song of assurance is discipline. Discipline. So in verse 4, we still have the imagery of the shepherd as the guide. But now it is pictured in the psalmist's current time of distress. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. So the, the psalmist continues the path metaphor. But he still takes serious the life of the Christian and the paths of darkness that we all face. Uh, the exact wording in the Hebrew is death shadow. Uh, but the valley of the shadow of death has become the traditional interpretation and is often read at funerals because of its association and clear mention of death. The psalm gives us a picture of restoration in the face of death. There is still life even when we are overshadowed by death and darkness. The theme here is resurrection. Life through death. And it is obviously our good shepherd, Jesus, that perfectly fulfills this psalm by conquering death in his resurrection. So, even in the darkest valleys, when death looms all around, the psalmist declares that Yahweh the shepherd is still with him. And then the psalmist, the psalmist explains how, how Yahweh is with him. He gives further details about God's presence and comfort amidst darkness, amidst death. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Again, we should still be thinking of the shepherd analogy, obviously. Now, poetry takes serious the created world around us and our knowledge of it, meaning you have to know some, some things about the world before you can understand poetry, since poetry uses images 
Poetry uses images in this world to convey meaning. So rod and staff in the context of a shepherd uh, requires a little bit more of our attention. In, in the Middle East, primitive sheepmen only carried a rod and a staff. That was all the equipment they would have. And the instruments, rod and staff, served different purposes. The rod of a, of a shepherd was used to discipline and correct any wayward sheep wandering too far away. It was also used to fight off other prey, such as coyotes, wolves, or other predators that may attack the sheep. But another use of the rod was to count the sheep, a phrase known as passing under the rod. And this didn't mean simply to count one, two, three, four. It actually meant the sheep needed thorough examination to make sure that their long wool did not cover up any disease or wounds. So in other words, to pass under the rod, this meant that the shepherd took good care of his sheep, making sure that their defects were looked after. For the sheep, this would give them comfort, knowing that all of their hidden problems would be laid bare before the shepherd for the sake of healing. In Ezekiel 20, 27, God says to Israel, I will make you pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. The imagery in Ezekiel in describing God's promised restoration of Israel is shepherd analogy, passing under the rod. A caring shepherd that seeks to discipline his sheep and assure them that all their faults, all their sins lay bare, unhidden from his eyes for the sake of healing. The other instrument is the staff. The staff is essentially what makes a shepherd a shepherd. The staff is the instrument that meets the needs of the sheep. It serves to guide the sheep to the proper path. Also, the staff, with its hook at the end, serves as a tool to catch the sheep in order to draw them to the shepherd for for examination. The staff is also used to rescue sheep caught in thorns or stuck on a steep part of a cliff since sheep are always wandering away looking for grass. So in other words, where the rod represents the authority and discipline of the shepherd, the staff represents the long-suffering mercy and kindness of the shepherd. In this way, both the rod and the staff represent the love of the shepherd. And all of this, all of this by way of analogy, represents God's relationship with his people. It is the long-suffering kindness of God combined with his discipline that should assure the Christian of God's love. It was God's discipline of David through the rod that brought him comfort. Think of David and Bathsheba and God's discipline of David through the death of his firstborn son. But... It was also God's kindness through the staff that brought David comfort too. God rewarded David's repentance by giving him another son, Solomon. What we have, what we have through these images of rod and staff is a picture of the Christian life. More specifically, the Christian life seen through God's discipline and our need of repentance. In other passages of wisdom literature in the Bible, we have similar examples of discipline and love. Psalm 94.12 says, 
Blessed is the one you discipline, Yahweh, the one you teach from your law. And then Psalm 119, verse 117, that in faithfulness you have inflicted me. And in Proverbs 3.12, Yahweh disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. The rod and staff in Psalm 23 give us the instruments God uses to restore his people to himself. His rod and staff keeps us protected, guiding us on the path. But even more than that, passing under the rod is what draws us into God's presence. To be examined before the shepherd where he enacts kindness, healing, and forgiveness over us. So the second assurance the psalm alludes to is God's discipline. And the whole purpose of discipline is restoration and forgiveness. The rod and staff are not at odds with one another. They have the same effect, comfort. God's discipline and the continued repentant life of the Christian brings comfort. It brings assurance because a repentant life acknowledges the need of God's discipline and forgiveness. Discipline should bring assurance to the Christian. So baptism, discipline, And then the third illusion in the Song of Assurance is the Lord's Supper. In verse 5, there is a shift in the analogy. Yahweh is not as much pictured as a shepherd, protecting and, and disciplining, as much as a host. A host. A host preparing a table, a banquet, a feast. And even the psalmist, he is no longer pictured as a sheep, but a guest invited to this feast. He is treated honorably with the anointing of oil. But then he's given a cup with not just a little wine, but an abundance of wine. The sign of a good party. Hopefully by now, you're already seeing the sacramental associations to the Lord's Supper. Let's look for a moment at the progression in the psalm. The psalmist is pictured as a sheep, one prone to wandering and being eaten by prey. But as the sheep receives these incredible gifts of protection and comfort, the sheep is no no longer pictured as a sheep, but as a guest invited to eat at God's table. This guest is treated as a friend, as a friend who is honored with oil and wine. And, And the emphasis on the oil and wine is on the abundance of the oil and wine. To anoint a person's head, with oil was customary conduct of honored guests, especially at a banquet in the ancient world. The word we have for anoint here literally means cause to make fat. So it reads, you fatten my head with oil. The imagery should make us think of a huge bucket of oil just being dumped on the head. The idea of abundance. And the wine also pictured in abundance. The cup is overflowing with wine. This is heavenly language, heavenly imagery, a heavenly reality that we look forward to, our future hope. Interestingly, this heavenly language is pictured in the presence of enemies. He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And this phrase, in the presence of my enemies, has been complicated somewhat by scholars and in sermons. The table being prepared in the presence of enemies is more a statement about the present reality of David's life 
Meaning, even in this life filled with evil and enemies who sought after David's life, he is still given this amazing feast. God's redemptive plans are experienced now on earth. And for David, in the presence of enemies and in the reality of death and darkness. And this is true for us. Our host, our friend, Jesus, prepares a table for us, a great heavenly banquet. But he gives us nourishment around the table today. He gives us himself at the Lord's Supper through bread and wine amidst all our present sins, distress, and enemies. It is in the sorrow and pain of suffering and death when the Christian must anticipate God's table, the gift of himself in the Lord's Supper. And it should be something that we long for, nourishment that we cannot live without. And the movement, the the progression in the psalm is, is our actual status before God. He takes us initially as sheep, blemishes and all. And then he befriends us with an abundance of blessings. The abundance for us today is Christ himself. Jesus' body and blood is given to us as our assurance. So if you're asked, or you ask yourself, how do I know that I'm a Christian? How do you know you are a Christian? Take Psalm 23 as your guide, as your answer. And the answer is, first, God leads me beside still waters, and I have been baptized. Second, God's rod and staff comfort me as God protects me from evil, disciplines me so that I can regularly confess and be reconciled to him. And then lastly, God prepares a table for me as a friend each week where I am regularly nourished by Christ at the Lord's table. When I was growing up, I did not think of my mother as a friend. I thought of her as the law. And she didn't have one rod, she had two. I actually have this vivid image in my head of my mom walking around the house with two rods, those skinny uh, rods from the blinds that she twisted off. Um, She was walking around the house almost like a ninja. Um, But my mom was a faithful mom. She guided us. She protected us. And she taught us to hate sin. And as I got older, I, I began to see my mom not so much as a crazy lady ready to strike. I, I now see my mom as my friend, a friend whose presence gives support, comfort, and encouragement. The reality is that my mother treated my siblings and I like sheep when we were younger. We were unable to look after ourselves. We needed correction. We needed training and protection. And she was doing this because she wanted deeper, more faithful relationships with us. She acted as a shepherd so that I would not stray in paths of darkness. And now, now she seeks far more to bless me with with gifts of kindness to enact discipline upon me. My mom is my friend. I think there's a similar parenting aspect to this psalm that helps us see more clearly God's relationship with his children. And many times, 
God is our shepherd who enacts pain and discipline upon us. But this should give us comfort because we know this is for our good. God is drawing us to himself. It is so that we might have right relationship with the Lord who treats us as a friend at his table, giving to us in abundance. Our God delights to give us good things. So in alluding to these three assurances, water, a rod, and a table, this is why the psalmist claims that he does not lack anything in verse 1. Why? Because his assurance lies in the physical reminders or physical rituals that God the shepherd gives him. And it is water, the rod, and the table which creates the desire to dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. His presence is everything for the Christian. This is a song of assurance, but it is completely liturgical. We who have been baptized enter God's presence with that reminder that we are claimed by God, and that is why we enter. Early um, church basilicas and cathedrals would place the baptistries and baptismal fonts at the entrance of the sanctuary as a picture of God's claim on the Christian through water, through baptism, and and the reason why Christians are even able to approach God's holy presence. And this was a physical reminder of God's claim on them and the reason they are able to commune with God and his people. Some Christian traditions still practice the ritual of of dipping their fingers in the water in the baptismal font and then crossing themselves as they enter the church. And while our, our Reformed traditions do not practice this ritual, you can see how that might be helpful for the Christian. A ritual to physically remind oneself of their baptism and how they enter God's presence rightly. As a side note, I don't think we should be scared of physical rituals that shout biblical truth. We should more be scared of our our sinful hearts which ruin good rituals. And today, the liturgical process, the ritual process we are going through this morning, it mirrors this song. We enter because of our baptism. But then we go quickly to our knees and repent, knowing that God's discipline, his rod and staff, bring us comfort, allowing us to confess and then receive God's forgiveness. And this reconciliation between God and his people now prepares, now prepares us for God's table to eat and drink with the Lord and his people. Experientially, I have often felt burdened coming to church. Sometimes, My sins are just heavy upon my mind, the feeling of being inadequate, or the terrible drive to church, being moody and trying to argue with my wife about the stupidest things. Uh, My my worship professor at Covenant Seminary, Mike Farley, said that in his experience, some of the worst marital fights he has had or heard about are in the car on the way to church in the morning. And he said he believes that this drive to church is the last attempt or ploy by the devil to disrupt relationships before they kneel before God and be reconciled to him. Just another reason why it's helpful to have confession at the beginning of the service. But we have all experienced coming to church with the feelings of wandering. Like dumb sheep, we go to church because that is what we do. Sometimes, though, unaware of the shepherd guiding us to waters of rest. And it's God's presence in the assembly of his people that enables us to kneel and confess and be reconciled with him. And this forgiveness, 
This gives us the feeling, the reality that we are no longer lost sheep. We are guests who are then treated by the Lord, the host, as friends. And he nourishes us at the table, and he delights to give us his blessings. And this feast, the Lord's Supper, it allows us to see clearly. It gives us the confidence to say, surely, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Psalm 23 reorients us. It reappropriates our desires and love toward the presence of God in His house, where we experience His grace and the sacraments, and then are assured of our relationship with Him. I will end with this quote on Psalm 23 from St. Ambrose. He says, Hear what sacrament you have received. Hear David who is speaking to you. He also foresaw in spirit these mysteries and exulted and declared that he wanted for nothing. Why? Because he who has received the body of Christ hungers no longer. How many times have you heard Psalm 23 without understanding it? See how it fits the heavenly sacraments. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your gifts. Your gifts that so often we take for granted. Your gifts that are supposed to be not only nourishing us, but it's supposed to be assuring us of our, of our relationship with you. Help us, Lord. Help us to see. Help us to live in a way that takes your gifts seriously. Help us to trust that you have claimed us in baptism, that you love us and want us to be more righteous through your rod and your staff. And help us, Lord, to see your table as something, something that we look forward to in heaven, but that is given to us now. A taste, a picture of heaven, a picture of your relationship with your people. Help us to see the table as our assurance. Help us to, to long for that assurance. Help us to, to not be able to live to sleep without it. We thank you, Lord, for your good gifts. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for restoring us to, your, to yourself, but then also nourishing us in your sacraments. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.